Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View listeners. This week, Sarah and I are super, super excited to have a rare guest on these days, <laughs> our good friend and um, chef extraordinaire and favorite geek, most interesting man in paleo. And that's not to mention all the work titles he has. Russ from the Domestic from I'm going to start over. Russ from the Domestic Man is here with us today. Hi, Russ. Hello, Hi, Russ. <laughs> Hi. How are you guys doing? Uh, our text exchange before this podcast was Sarah's husband guessing who was going to be our guest on the show. <laughs> and it was like Bill Nye, Kit Harrington, and my response was, "He's not thinking big enough." <laughs> And as I said, as we were talking before the show, I said, the funny thing was when I told him, like, no, we're going to have Russ Crandall on, he like suddenly became super jealous that we get to hang out and like he's not a part of it. So obviously we're long overdue for a visit. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. I, you know, I would ask that you guys uh, also share this with my wife so she also realizes how awesome I am. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's Janie I miss the most. So. Yeah, me too. Well, I'm excited that I get to see both of you in the not too distant future. When this show airs, we will officially be on the road. And while it is the end of the summer that we make our way back to the East Coast, um, I will be seeing you both in about two months, which is crazy fun and exciting, uh, but not all at once, unfortunately. <laughs> but I'm excited to come visit you both. Yeah. I'm excited to see you. I It feels, two months feels like a really long time away from now and really short at the same time. I don't know why it feels like, oh my gosh, you're going to be here like tomorrow. And then, oh, I have to wait two months. It feels like both of those at the exact same time. It's like, it feels I guess, like waiting tomorrow because I, I just packed for it. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this experience has been quite interesting. Um we're actually like starting our own family podcast about it so that we can remember we're going to try to travel log every single day. And um, I have like this ultimate soapbox to express about the planning <laughs> sessions of everything <laughs> that will come in the future. But um, yeah, it's it's been a lot. So I'm excited to take a little breather with you guys. And um this week, we specifically asked Russ to join because Russ has been working for about four years, we just discovered as we were doing the yeah. math on all of this, um, on his self-published latest book, The Heritage Cookbook. And while you can get an e-copy now, you can also pre-order a hard copy and get the e-book version with it. Right, Russ? That's, That's right. Yep. Yeah. So it cool. comes with an instant download. But then, yeah, because we we're not going to go to print until like next month, which means they won't be delivered until October. We wanted to make sure everyone got something. And so we were including the ebook with everything else. Well, I have personally seen the ebook and I have eaten and tested recipes, both pre-publication, post-publication. And um, I've talked with you a lot about where this idea came from. And I know it's been a huge passion of yours. And what I think is, is really interesting is that this is not just a cookbook. It's um, an exploration of DNA and ancestry and how our heritage influences, you know, our culture and our health and our food all at once. And so I have also had an experience that I, I've mentioned here on the show a little bit, but haven't really gone in depth on, which is that my mom discovered her birth parents two years ago through um, Ancestry.com and um, DNA matching and then 
also did 23andMe and, and found a lot of information out through um, those programs, both from our own DNA as well as like the family that she found. And you have your own story as well. So I thought it might be um, interesting to explore that from the context of what we can glean from that. And I know Sarah's, Sarah is probably chomping at the bit to, to talk about that stuff because she geeks out on um, blood tests. <laughs> uh, I mean, testing of all kinds, donuts don't just limit it to blood. I also like things that use radiation of all kinds. <laughs> like, I think... I think other bodily fluid tests are interesting. Yeah, no, I, I love data. What can I say? <laughs> um, so, Russ, for those people who have not yet met you yet on the show, can you give them maybe just a, a little overview of who you are and how you came to um, be an author, your your history and all of that, and, and what drove you to dive deep into heritage? Yeah. So, um, so to start, you know, I, uh, I'm in the military, I've been in the military for almost 20 years now. And so that kind of, um, it kind of frames everything in my life, like through that, you know? And so, uh, when I first joined, you know, not a big deal, just kind of normal guy, no health issues or whatever. But then about five years into it, uh, I had a stroke, uh, just in the middle and, you know, uh, just came out of nowhere and, um, I ended up getting hospitalized for a while you know, I was only like 24 at the time and, um, I actually recovered like pretty quickly, but you know, I had lost like left, like all the function on my left side. So I like had to relearn how to write and, and walk and things like that. And I just kind of recovered, you know, it's the nice thing about being 24 and having a stroke is that you kind of get over it pretty quickly. Um, but about a year after that, things got way worse. I started getting uh, really out of breath and, um, it's just really, really hard. And, you know, I'm trying to deal with, uh, doing all the mandatory, like military, like physical training and stuff while like, like not being able to run anymore. I ended up going back to the hospital and saying, Hey, I think something's really wrong. And, uh, they, I ended up living in a hospital for a long time in a military hospital. And, um, it ended up being that they diagnosed me with an autoimmune disease called, uh, Takiasus arteritis. And, uh, it's kind of handful to say, but basically what that really means is the inflammation of arteries and for an unknown reason, you know, and just like most autoimmune diseases, they really have no idea what it's about. And so I got put on just a ton of medication, you know, immunosuppressant medication mostly and blood thinners and stuff like that to really try to uh, balance everything within my body because my body was just overreacting. And so it was my pulmonary arteries that were getting inflamed, which was why I was getting out of breath. And so I did that for like a year. Uh, and had a really hard time, you know, the medication was causing all sorts of issues. So I ended up uh, having open heart surgery and um, went in and actually fixed or tried to fix my pulmonary arteries, like scrape them clean from all the inflamed tissue and put it all back together again. And it was a, it was a really drastic surgery, um, but I, I made it out of there okay. But the problem was as soon as they fixed me up and put me all back together and then I, it, you know, it took me about six months to recover from that uh, it all just got worse again because I hadn't fixed any of the issues within my body. So I went right back on all the same medications. And so uh, a few years after that, after just kind of, you know, resolving that, well, this is just kind of my fate. Uh, I ended up um, finding a random blog article talking about Rob Wolf's book, um, the paleo solution when it had first come out. So this was like 2010, like early 2010. And so around mid to late 2010, I ended up changing my diet and just saying, well, let me see. This is the one thing I haven't tried before. And it seems pretty easy. And I have my undergraduate degrees in history. And so it made a lot of sense to me. I was like, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, maybe we aren't eating the way we have historically. So therefore, uh, maybe going back to that was, is the missing piece. And sure enough, like, a lot of my issues started to disappear over the course of just a month. And so I ran back to the doctors and said, hey, I want to get tested. I think that I'm doing a lot better. And, they, you know, they did a bunch of blood work, Sarah's favorite thing. And uh, <laughs> it came back and they go, oh, look, you know, the medication's finally working. And I said, no, I think it's the, the diet, you know. And so, um, so I kept on with the diet. And then I started blogging about it because... I felt like I needed something to hold myself accountable, you know, just to kind of share it out there. And there weren't that many recipe blogs for paleo at the time. And so I just started blogging about it and it just kind of 
blossomed into um, kind of a bigger following than I ever was expecting. It really was just a hobby at the time. Um, but I ended up getting a book deal, uh, really through working with Stacy, you know, like, cause we had become friends cause we lived near each other at the time. And she's like, Oh yeah, you should talk to my publisher or whatever. And so we ended up hooking up and, um, I published my first book, the ancestral table in 2014. Uh, and then my second book was paleo takeout in 2015. And, uh, I planned on kind of going on a trajectory and kind of publishing more books, you know, in the future. Um, but it, and right as I finished Paleo Takeout, I had all these big ideas. And at some point, there's something happened in me where I just kind of, it became really important for me to figure out a little bit more about my own family. And so I mentioned the whole military thing. And uh, so my, my birth father was in the military. He was in the Navy. My mom is a Navy brat. And they met in San Diego when my father was stationed there. Um, they got married and they had two kids, me and my older brother, Travis. Um and I have no memories of him. I have just very faint memories of him, you know, but he was out of the picture by the time I was about three. And then we did a few visitations um, up until I was about five or six. And that's it. You know, I, my mom actually remarried when I was uh, three or four. Um, and I was raised by my stepdad also, who also happened to have been in the military too, in the Navy. And so, um, and I never heard from him again. You know, my mom called him when I was like eight or nine to get my name changed, to get adopted by my stepdad. So I've, I took on a different name and everything, you know. And so my identity has always been being raised by a stepfather who was the perfect father, but still not like genetically that kind of mattered to me. Like I wondered, you know, was I going to inherit, you know, these th things, you know, be it maybe my disease, be it maybe, you know, just some facial, you know, physical traits, things like that were just kind of interesting to me. And then the whole 23andMe thing was kind of cropping up around the same time too. And so it started to become important to me because I started thinking about our kids. We ended up having our second son in 2015, so a little after Paleo Takeout um, published. And I was like, you know, what am I passing on to these guys? I don't even know, you know. And so um, I ended up doing kind of two things. One is doing DNA research to kind of see what the what the latest science said about the genes that I had and what I could potentially be passing on to my children. And then the second was finding out more about my dad and like kind of where my genes are from, you know. And um, I'd, I'd heard all sorts of rumors all through my life. My brother and I used to always just kind of spin each other up with these like urban legends. So we had told each other at some point that our dad had like remarried and then had gotten new kids and named them after us. So we had like other versions of us running around. Well, all these weird things that we as kids like came up with. Yeah. And so we had no idea. Right. But I ended up going on actually Ancestry and and starting to do the research. And, you know, they have like, you know, I found the birth certificate of, of my own birth certificate. I found my, my parents' marriage certificate where, where I was able to find out his middle name. You know, all these kind of crazy things. So I ended up finding out that he he had been married before my mom and he had a, a daughter. So I had an older sister, I had no idea, you know. And then he did get remarried after my mom and had another um, two kids. So I had two other siblings, too, that I had no idea, you know. And so here I go, you know, 2015, 2016, I started looking him up. And sure enough, they're, they're on Facebook, all three of them, you know. And so it was super awkward, but I, like, <laughs> introduced myself. I was like, hey. I'm your brother, you know, and, um, it was, it was crazy. And even my stepmom, I, 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 I had very vague memories that my, my dad had like met another woman, you know, I kind of remembered her a little bit and then I found her, she was also on Facebook. And so I reached out to her and part of it is, is one, I wanted to introduce myself to them. And that, that was just really strange, you know, just to kind of say, Hey, you know, um, were related, you know, but at the same time, I wanted to know more about my dad so that I could research more about where he was from, who was who his friends were, things like that. And he obviously wasn't on Facebook, and um, yeah, but but they had enough memories about their own grandparents who I had never met really um, that, that I was able to do all the research and find my entire uh, paternal like ancestry through basically just a couple names, you know. And so as I started putting that all together, the, the second part of like the, the cookbook part of it kind of started to come together where I started thinking, you know, I, I, I like a certain type of food all the time. Like there's certain foods I always crave. And I've always had this feeling like there's something to like 
where your genes are from that you potentially, you know, say you had a family, you know, your family line lived in a certain place for thousands of years and they ate certain ingredients indigenous to that area. What if there is some sort of micro adaptation to that area and to those ingredients? And so, and, and, and personally, I always felt drawn to, and it sounds ridiculous, but it was fish like cold water fish. So I always love sardines and herring and things like that. Um, and then I was always drawn to cabbage of all things. Like I could eat cabbage all day, every day. Right. And, and I'm like, I'm the kind of guy who can't eat the same meal twice, you know? And so that was a revelation to me. And then same thing with like, you know, with, with lamb and beef and, uh, potatoes too, were, were a big thing. And then all, all things, uh, dairy, but I think that's just an inherent human thing. But <laughs> those were the things that I felt like, I'm like, those are all things that are from the British Isles and I, and it, other than potatoes, but again, they have a long history of potato eating even after they were introduced, you know? And so I started really thinking about what if there's a connection between my genes and the foods that I crave and these foods that seem to help me perform the best, you know? And, um, sure enough, as I started doing that family research, especially on my father's side, uh, I found out we had a very, very long history in England. And even though I actually traced back one of my ancestors to the Mayflower, I realized that uh, they had actually, my genetic traits, you know, from 23andMe and the other DNA tests I took, were still something around 95% English heritage. And which is really interesting given the fact that I have almost 400 years of history in the United States they kept it in the family, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like they just married among other uh, British ancestry people all throughout my family's history, which was really interesting. But I started peeling that back and said, okay, well, if this is something that may potentially have implications for me, what about everybody else? And that's Mm kind of, before we get into the nitty gritties of the book, that's basically what kind of started me thinking about making a book based on heritage. And it it was obviously a lot of research, took me about four years to do it, but I'm, I'm really, really happy. I'm proud of what came out of it. What do you think your biggest research takeaway was? Because I know we we talked a lot about kind of where you hoped the research would take you. And what Sarah and I talk a lot about on the show is that's not oftentimes what you find, right? Unless you're you're cherry picking your data. So what, yeah. what do you think some of your favorite um, takeaways and, and what might interest people to learn? Yeah, so... I think the the biggest takeaway, and this is just like the biggest way to not sell my own book, is that I thought that, you know, there was going to be these secret foods that were fine-tuned to my genetic traits, you know, and that I I would only be able to really eat potatoes and cabbage and pork and, and beef or whatever, you know, my entire life because that's where my people are from, you know, that kind of thing. But... I learned that the science is nowhere near there, right? There's no way that they're at a point where they're identifying these certain things. There are definite definite human adaptations based on their environment as well as the foods that they've been exposed to. But they're very small, and a lot of them are kind of those typical ones that we know about, like the lactose intolerance, right? There are some people who have a history of dairy practices throughout their family lines, and that does give them the ability to have a higher prevalence of the lactase enzyme, which allows them to digest lactose so that they're able to do that after uh, kind of the breastfeeding years. And so those are kind of well-established ideas, you know, but at the same time, there really isn't that much out there. There's a few things, like, for example, uh, so populations who grew, like, who kind of came about throughout the equator, uh, they are more likely to be able to um, digest plant fats, so like omega-3 uh, acids, like, so like through like, you know, flax seeds, those kind of things, like those ones that we always talk about where it's like not necessarily the, the pure, easy to get omega-3s like from fish, but from vegetables, that they actually have a higher ability to get more omega-3s out of that um out of that kind of digestive process because of a long history of eating a lot of plants because on the equator there's a lot of tropical growth and so a lot more plants available throughout history. So I found a few things, but really the big spoiler was that there is no, like I can't say you are of German heritage, therefore these are the foods that work for you. But the kind of the, the, the alternative that I found as I was doing my research, and part of this is, you know, I'm, I'm a historian by trade, and so I love this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm actually a linguist in the Navy, so I, I work with languages all day. And they're, they're completely related, you know. And what I realized is that the best way to find out 
kind of how people thrive is looking at historical eating patterns over history. And we don't have a lot of uh, good anecdotes past, like, or I should say, previous to the 20th century, but we do have some pretty good mid 20th century statistics to show specifically how much food or what specific foods a country grew and consumed and imported and exported. And you can kind of take all that big macro level stuff to see specifically which populations were eating what food groups at the higher amounts. And so what, what I ended up doing with that is I'd really played with the math and the, stat, uh, you know, the stats for a long time, but I came to realize that there was huge disparities between populations and what they were thriving on, what they were eating. And this is all, you know, this is from like 1961 is kind of the, the, the banner year where all of this data is from which is not necessarily a traditional old school diet, but is definitely way more traditional than what we're eating today. And you can see that in the patterns uh, as you go through the years, right? And so uh, so I found two kind of big major uh, things in this in writing the book. It's one that we're not at a place where we're going to be able to uh, tailor a diet specifically to your own genetic traits or to your actual ancestry, but there are enough population level statistics to really get a good idea of what foods historically uh, certain regions have focused on and kind of why and how that history kind of came together. And so when I ended up writing the book, it ended up being almost more of like a food history, like historical book. I ended up looking at each one of those major food groups and what the origin of that food specifically was. You know, where where does pork come from? Where do pigs come from? How does all that come together? When did we actually start eating pigs? Where have pigs historically been grown like and in, in, in raised and everything else? And, and kind of putting that all together into the context of the, the book. And then I wrote a cookbook based on that. So, for example, um, if you look, just keeping along the kind of lines of pork. So, you know, over history, uh, there's certain populations that ate a lot of pork and there's many populations that ate no pork. Right. So uh, Europe in, in Western Europe. So Germany and France has a long history of pork eating, as well as the British Isles, especially up north. And then China has a huge amount of pork eating. And that's like the two major areas where historically they've had a, a huge amount of eating pork. Um, so when I wrote the recipes and I started putting things together, as I organized the pork chapter, I gave preference to those countries where their historical origin was from eating the, that type of food more often than not. So you end up with a cookbook where you look it up and you, you can look at, okay, I'm of German heritage. You go to the European section, you read all about kind of historical eating patterns in Europe. You look at Germany in particular and it talks about the, the, you know, the large amount of pork and how much pork they ate compared to everybody else in the world over time, um, as well as how much of their diet consisted of pork. You can kind of see all those things together. And then when you go to the pork uh, recipes, you find that the most of them are tailored to German or European recipes for that exact same reason that anyone who's looking at any of those food groups where the majority is from their region, they'll find the majority of the recipes in the book correlate to that. So that's a lot of data, but that's basically, you can imagine why it took me four years to write this book, which is nearly 800 pages long uh, with 300 recipes in it, why it took so long to kind of put it together. But to me, it's so fascinating to kind of put together this kind of new idea, you know, of, of looking at historical eating patterns and then tailoring a book to that. So, yeah. Did you, did you also, I mean, one of the things that I find so like exciting and impressive about this book I, I think of you as being this sort of expert in um, sort of Asian culture cuisine. Um, I, like I just, I think, you know, like the paleo takeout type recipes or mm -hmm. ancestral table, right? A lot of that is very Asian inspired, but mm -hmm. this book really covers the entire globe. And I can see in these recipes um, like that you must have had to do an amazing amount of research to really understand the traditional recipes and then be able to figure out how to adapt them for ingredients that you can, you know, get. I mean, even if you have to sort of order some specialty items online, yeah. like to me, I'm just like blown away at how like truly global the cuisine is in this book. I, I just want to know about the, the research process for being able to like teach yourself how to cook these with these different methodologies. 
Yeah. So that's, that was also a really fun component. So the other really main, like big statistics that I used as I put together the book was our current ancestry group group populations in the United States. So I looked at specifically, okay, we always hear, you know, there's a lot of German Americans in the U S okay. How many German Americans are in the U S where are they located? Like, how did they get here? All those kind of things. Right. So that's the other part of the research I did is to figure out what our actual ancestral group breakout is in the United States. And so I, that's what I started with, is kind of looking at big population levels and saying, okay, these are the major chunks of groups in the U.S. And then I divided up, kind of in my mind, the amount of recipes that I was going to dedicate to a specific region was based on how many people are from that region in particular, right? So that way, statistically, you have the likelihood of opening up the book and seeing a fair amount of recipes based on your ancestral group, based on how prevalent they are in the United States. And I called it representation, basically. And so that's kind of how I started, you know, and I ended up coming up with about 500 different dishes that I went back and through every single country and region, I went back through the history books, looked through everything they've eaten, what are their primary foods, like what are their kind of staple dishes, things like that, even if it was super hard to make or, or very easy to make, you know, de definitely like looking at not necessarily, you know, the things that we associate with a culture today, but what have been associated with a culture throughout history. So when I'm looking at France, I'm not thinking of French fries. I'm thinking about, you know, like things like roast chicken or, or vegetables, you know, like roasted root vegetables. Those are like old school, like French preparations of things. And so uh, I had to kind of go back and peel, peel back the lens of kind of food history to figure out what worked. And then you're right, I had to figure out how to make that work in a modern kitchen. And in a way that one connects us with our ancestors, because I wanted people to kind of, you know, if you're of French heritage and you, you, you cook the French recipes, I want you to feel like you are cooking the food of, of your ancestry, right? That you're going back hundreds of years and cooking in the same way that they did, right? And that's not how the modern recipes are written, right? Modern recipes are like, you know, use specific amounts of ingredients at specific times and make sure you're done with your recipe in 20 minutes because otherwise no one else is going to make it, right? right? And so I had to go back and be like, no, we're, we're literally going to recapture that old school kitchen. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to make it so difficult and so ornery of a task that no one actually does it. And so my kind of rules were, were two things. One, uh, you had to be able to find the ingredients uh, locally. So you either had to do it uh, through your local grocery store. So I assume that everybody in America has access to your typical grocery store, as well as some sort of specialty market, maybe an Asian market, maybe a Hispanic market. And then also they have access to Amazon.com and that they're <laughs> able to uh, they're able to order like specialty dried ingredients. So for example, certain spices or whatever, right. That you can get it at a price that's not ridiculous, but something that you kind of can keep, you know, but I wasn't going to go around the lines of like trying to make everything gourmet or anything else like that, but really trying to get back to that kind of heritage idea. So those are the two kind of things I wanted to make sure that they had access locally and that they could order from Amazon. And then the techniques themselves, I, I, I told myself, okay, we're going to keep it simple. Uh, there are, you know, like instant pot variations available in some of those just to kind of cut down the cooking time. But everything else is your typical like Dutch oven or cast iron, like kind of large um, dish, you know, like a pot. And then uh, potentially, depending on where the, you know, the, the ancestry lies, you know, certain other uh, tools or ingredients, but really keeping it kind of true to very simple methods. So I don't, I don't ask people to buy specialty tools or anything else like that. It's all kind of things that you can put together on your own. Now you can speed up the process. So for example, like a Thai curry, like I expect people to have a mortar and pestle and so they can, they can pound together the ingredients and that I'll tell you makes such a much more delicious end state, you know, for the curry and the, the way the ingredients are bruised before they're, they're chopped up and everything else. It just, they, they secrete more oils it makes it more delicious, you know. But at the same time, I did put in food processor instructions for those people who maybe don't have a mortar and pestle or they uh, just don't have the time or they, they, they're intimidated by that kind of thing. And so kind of, you know, finding that middle ground where, one, this is a book where people kind of treasure because it is – uh, you know, it's so personal of uh, an approach to eating. But the second time, I also wanted to make sure that people cooked out of it. And the way I kind of looked at it was, um, so my wife is not an expert chef, right? But she follows my recipes. She's really good at that kind of thing. And she can follow any recipe, really. 
um, I wrote this book kind of for our family. Like this is the book that we will cook out of for the rest of our lives. Mm. And um, that was like a really important thing to me too, was to make it accessible at her level and not try to impress people with what I could do personally, you know? So let me just be really clear yeah. though. Janie, Janie's level, I think is, <laughs> is not getting the credit it deserves. <laughs> uh, I agree. I agree. Right. And so uh, she is pretty great at, at making recipes and stuff, but she is a very particular person when it comes to, uh, recipe, like, uh, you know, working through a recipe in a way that I definitely don't do. So for example, you know, she will stick to the times that are indicated on a recipe to the T, like she'll set a timer. And even if she like realizes that something may not be going the way it is, she'll stick to the plan, right. For better or for worse. And so, uh, I had to keep like a lot of those things. And she's always been my, my best sounding board when it comes to writing recipes, because then I can make sure that, uh, I'm, I'm, getting more than one perspective and I'm not writing in a vacuum and she's been really helpful for that. But yes, she is totally awesome. So I have personally made, um, no, not me. I haven't personally made anything. Let's be really clear. <laughs> Matt has made quite a number of recipes. And what I do love about this is I really feel like for those people that do know you and love paleo takeout you might not know russ had a first book the ancestral table um that is when we fell in love with your cooking i mean we already knew you and we're personal friends and we cooked from your blog but there are so many um amazing recipes in the ancestral table that you kind of simplified some of them and then expanded upon that you know takeout concept in paleo takeout mm -hmm. if anybody loves those recipes you're going to love how russ has expanded culturally that same concept especially from the ancestral table like i think that your description of feeling and experience as you cook the meals is very on point but i do want to say that not every recipe is like a four-day process you right. can make your own sourdough but you can also find recipes within the book that are more simple that you know don't take that same amount of time but still have a cultural heritage to them that even if that isn't your cultural heritage is great to do like this is the kind of book where for every holiday for example St. Patrick's Day you can turn to um European section for Irish inspired dishes that are truly authentic and not just you know colored green for example um <laughs> And I think that that's, that's really important in today's day and age when, you know, America is truly a melting pot of cultures. We're a very special place. Um, you know, frankly, I, I don't know any other country like that, right, where we have so many different cultures and to be able to experience the food um, in a way that really evokes the, the spirit of that history is super special. It, it really is. Even if it's not your cultural ancestry to, to be able to read about the history and to experience it in the cooking, like for me, that's super special. And I, I wonder if that's, you know, given the experience we've had and our family's love of history, but I think a, a lot of people identify, um, with that experience. Yeah. And I'll tell you, some of these recipes are disappearing, you know, like it is, it's definitely a thing where, um, I, I had a very hard time finding some traditional preparations for some of these books. I, I found them or for some of these dishes, you know, I, I found them referenced as somewhere in history books, but I had a really hard time seeing how they were made. And one example is, uh, there is a Egyptian, um, fish dish and it's called uh, samak maswi and i may be saying that wrong um but it's uh i had a hard time finding because the only uh recipes that i could find for it in english um they just didn't make sense to me it kept it kept saying egyptian grilled fish and i would read through it and i'd read through the ingredients and i would see pictures um from from various places and kind of see what it looked like and it, it didn't make sense to me and i i actually put it together and it's, it's kind of really neat recipe where you take a uh, a date puree you know and you actually end up spicing it a little bit and then you spread that over fish and then you cook it and uh so what i did first off is i grilled it right because it said egyptian grilled fish so i find i try to find all these ways of grilling it looking at the historical fishes available along the nile region and and trying to use those types of fishes 
grilling and they were just falling apart. Like the fish is just falling through the grill grates. You know, and I know I could use like a little bit of a, a grate stopper and things like that, but I'm like, this isn't making any sense. And I realized over time that it grilled fish. It's because in, in England, which I think is where some of these translations were coming from, the grill is like the broiler in an oven. Right. Mm. And so what they were saying is they're trying to say broiled fish. You know what I mean? That they were using a hot element from the top down, not from the bottom up in order to heat this fish. Right. And all of a sudden it came together and it became this really great recipe. But it took me like three tries to really figure out what I was doing wrong because there was no information out there about this dish that had been found throughout all sorts of historical record. And so those are the kind of things that I had to piece together as I was building these recipes. And I ended up actually cooking about 500 recipes on the way to making the 300 that ended up in the book. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And some of these dishes, yeah, I, I think that I, I felt a real urgency about making sure that these dishes got down on record for somebody's book uh, before they start disappearing in the world of um, not necessarily fast food, but where we're, we're kind of outsourcing all of our and that was something that was really important to me. I love that. I think um, it speaks a lot to the integrity that you have with food and recipes as well. I find um, any, any recipe we've ever made of yours, that it, it has felt genuine and intentional and all that kind of stuff. And so I think you, you spoke to that well. Um, Thank you. What, what might be interesting is to... Um, dive a little into kind of our our own experiences <laughs> with these blood tests. I mean, we've we've talked about kind of what um came of them, but I know mm-hmm. I I wanted to kind of share and and clarify with a little more detail the um the saga that my mother discovered, <laughs> um, which has been, you know, Sarah knows the soap opera now cause it's been a couple of years, but I've never actually shared the details here on the show. And I, I think it's, it all plays into this idea of really learning about your heritage and your ancestry. And, um, I can say from my own personal experience that some of the people in these stories had, no idea that their DNA was um, different than what they thought. And so maybe you don't want to know that information, <laughs> but um, it certainly gives color to, you know, we, we wouldn't have known we were French Canadian or, you know, some of the other things that my mom discovered along the way from, you know, who's, who's the actual um, parental lineage versus, um, what people were told in, in multiple cases along her, her journey. So, um, I don't know if, uh, Sarah, if you had other things you wanted to ask Russ about, like, especially with, um, your story and some of the things that brought you to where you are today. But, um, I, I just think it's such an interesting topic to explore from how, enlightened we can become about ourselves from this information. And I think that's key to our podcast is always like information is such a a critical commodity and especially for your, your own well-being. I think. Mm -hmm. I think for me, my, my personal approach has been um, almost like the flip side of the coin in terms of using my DNA to really understand my diet. So instead of looking at it from a heritage perspective, I look at like, okay, well, like, oh, I have HLA-DQ2, one of the celiac risk genes that's also very, very strongly linked with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Well, that explains my violent reactions to gluten. And, you know, it's also a Hashimoto's risk gene. So like, I'm such an analytical person that I tend to look at, um, look at those, um, I tend to look at those pieces of information from a very sort of like micro level. And I love that you've taken this more macro perspective, you know, what can I, what can I take from this like broader information? Cause for me, when I looked at, when I did 
DNA screening and I looked at my uh, actual heritage, for me, it was like confirming what I already knew in terms of, right? So there's some British, some Scottish, quite a lot of French, um, some Canadian First Nations, quite a lot of Canadian First Nations. And, and I went like, yep, you know, check mark. And then I dove into like, what is my specific snip of this gene? I, I love that your approach was the other side, right? So really trying to look at that heritage data and try to understand what that might mean in terms of diet and then coming to this conclusion of it being this deeper connection to ancestry and that this exploration in terms of optimal diet for us as individuals is still part of our, our journeys. And instead of it being um, one informing the other, of it being two two parts of this journey towards really understanding ourselves. And I, I don't know if I have a question at the end of this. I just, I think it's mm. really, um, I think it's something that we're not, we're so connected on the internet to everything that's going on in the world right now and to each other. And part of the things that we've lost with that connectivity is this connection to oral history, this connection to uh, grandma teaching you this family secret recipe. Those things are starting to get lost over the generations. And I love that this book helps center us into those traditions and helps bring us back to those values in a way that honors our heritage, but then still gives us that room to get micro with our DNA data and our other, all the testing data to be able to really understand ourselves in the context of the modern world. And I think that's all I wanted to say. It's just, I really love you, Russ, and I really love the book <laughs> and that's it. Thanks. Well, so I will, I, you know, I'll add a little to that from my kind of perspective. I, I, I totally agree, right, that, that this came from a kind of a macro level, but I, I honestly did approach it from the micro level initially, right, And, and because, because it was my own journey, right? And so mm -hmm. part of the things I didn't mention in here is that I also, once I figured out my family history and I traced it all the way back to the 1400s in England and everything, I actually went to England. I went to my ancestral homelands like, and found the places where, for example, my ancestor who went on the Mayflower, where he was born, uh, where he was baptized. I went to all those places and I just, I did it on my own. I didn't, you know, I didn't contact anybody or anything like that. I just went and, you know, I wanted to stand upon these same lands that my ancestors had and see if there was something going on, right? Just way beyond the whole DNA part of it and way beyond um, kind of just this arbitrary knowledge that we are from a location. But what would happen if I stood in that place? How would I feel, you know, standing on the same grass, you know, more or less that someone did 600 years previously? And, um, I came away with that, like kind of two, one of two things. One, it was just, it was awe-inspiring, right? To be able to just kind of have that connection with these people who I, I never met and I will never meet, right? But having that ability to kind of have this connection with them. And two, realizing that that my DNA test and my ancestry.com does not define who I am today, right? It, it does a yeah. little bit. It does say like, you know, that I am, you know, of this heritage or whatever. But when it comes down to it, just as much as I am of British American ancestry and everything else, I, I'm I'm just Russ Crandall, right? I'm a guy who grew up in Washington State, a guy who's been in the military for 20 years, the father of two. Those that's the family history that I'm starting today, you know. And uh, when I kind of put it all together in this really kind of big connection kind of way, that's when I realized. And I was just starting working on the recipes at this point. I was like, I have to go and actually look at human history in the lens of all of that together and how we're all connected. Because I think, especially in, and I, and I hate to get political, but in today's political climate, this is something where we start to become more divided when there's actually a connection with each of us and where that all mm. kind of goes together. And so I actually address a lot of these kind of issues, like how do genetics and like racial differences and all those kind of things, how do they actually play out in history and how do they look genetically? And it's, it's so far from the narrative that we see on social media and things like that, that we are so connected with one, each, one another and, and there's so much more to it than that. And this is kind of my way of looking at that and, and presenting that together. And, and when I dedicated this book, I dedicated it to my parents as well as to my children because my parents are like a representation of everything, like human 
kind of progress up until the moment that I appeared, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm that manifestation of human progress for the past 200,000 years of our kind of human history. But then my children, you know, they're, they're the next step, right? They are, uh, the, the moment they are born, they are that next step in human progress. And um, trying to put all that together in kind of a really way that's connected way outside of the trappings of DNA and dieting, you know, all those kind of things. We're really looking at how are we connected, but also giving people the tools to get to that micro level by, by explaining how it is we do DNA research, what it means, and what are the things that are important when you get your results back and what really actually don't matter. Uh, all that context was really, really important to me. So I think we, we're, t we're saying the same thing, but from two different uh, approaches, but we're mm -hmm. hitting that same middle ground. And I, I really love that. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, I think so. Exactly. I think you said what I said much more eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about it for four years. So you know. There you go. <laughs> um, so Stacy, I know that you also have a really fascinating story with discovering ancestry. And uh, I feel like since, you know, discovering discovering our heritage is kind of the theme of the show. I think now is a good time for you to share your story. Well, um, I, so I've mentioned my mother was adopted and up until two years ago did not know anything about her birth family. Um, she, you know, she was raised in a, a loving home and, and all of that good stuff. But I think the curiosity gets the the best of you. And more than that, um, what people might not realize who don't have this experience is when you're adopted, you have no idea about your health history. And, um, you know, even at something like a pregnancy appointment or, you know, a regular doctor's checkup, they ask you about your family history. That's super important to health. And my mom had none of that information. And I only had hers. I, you know, it was like, if it hadn't happened with my mom, I had no idea either. And so she went about trying to find that information through DNA testing, both um, Ancestry.com as well as 23andMe. And um, much to her surprise, she got a full-blooded relative hit almost immediately. Her full-blooded sister was already in um, ancestry, and she was able to make that connection and um, very shortly thereafter discover that her father was alive and living 20 minutes from her and that she had um, many other siblings. I don't want to go into the detail of her family because it's, you know, I want to be respectful of their privacy, but she went on to have, let's say, four half siblings and two full-blooded sisters that were both alive and well, and one of which was local. And so we met in person many of the relatives, including the half siblings and um, the full-blooded sister and the father. Um, and, you know, hearing the story of what happened and, and all of that kind of stuff is... Um, when it comes to the emotional aspect of that, something entirely different, right? Like, I'm, I'm not going to go into that part of it, but I think it's important just to acknowledge that that that's huge um, for for people in, in any of the scenario for my mom, as well as all the other people like it's, it's crazy to meet or not crazy isn't the right word. But Russ, I'm sure you had this experience meeting your you know, siblings, it's, you know, just to reach out to someone and say, yeah. I'm your brother, or, you know, I'm your sister, like, whoa, like, that's, that's huge. If someone yeah. said that to you today, you know, and for a lot of these um, siblings that discovered, you know, my mom and her sisters, uh, after the fact, and, and those kinds of things, it's, you know, in one way, you're, you're a mature adult at this point, And, you know, the, the factors that led to those decisions aren't really as, you know, politically and, and emotionally charged as they were at the time, you know, um, but at the same time, it obviously had a huge impact on everybody's life. And what was, you know, most um, overwhelming for my mom and I is here, we had um, 
we'd known that we had health issues and, you know, we've done the similar things that, that you said, Sarah, from the 23andMe perspective, looking at our own DNA and, and realizing, ah, oh, yes, there's, there's the celiac in multiple places right. and, you know, um, all of these kinds of things, um, MTHFR and, you know, all these self-discoveries uh, from a health perspective. But what, what you don't learn is, Every single family member in your family history has had multiple cases of traumatic cancer. Um, you know, you we didn't realize that we had cancer in our family, and my father doesn't have it on his side, um, and my husband doesn't have um, it really on his side either. And so, cancer is never really big worry on my radar and especially with the lifestyle and the choices that we live and then to meet all of these siblings and to find out all of these family members who had passed from from cancer and it wasn't their first type that they they battled and they won other cancers and then they they died of this other cancer and um and and the ones that were alive had battled at least one cancer each themselves as well and um it's it's been um, shaking. Like, I, I don't know really what else, how else to, to phrase it to realize, you know, my, my mom and I have had this kind of awakening in the last two years where, you know, I went in for BRAC testing and um, we're being taken a lot more seriously by doctors when we say, you know, we have this, this and this in our direct history. And, you know, for me, I had um, stomach pains two weeks ago and because of my family history was immediately sent in for a CT scan because with, with my history, like this is not something to mess around with. So, but would that, would I have known that without the DNA that was known to us? Absolutely not. Um, so I will say the, um, the, the lighthearted part of this, um, well, f- first of all, knowledge is power. And while we're scared and we're getting all these tests and, you know, holding our breath for the results and all that kind of stuff, um, everything is, is well right now for, for us that we know, but also, um, having that knowledge is so much more important and powerful now than Mm -hmm. not knowing, right? Like not being able to tell a doctor, Hey, we have this history was, um, not what we wanted ultimately though. It's more scary, but, um, so I'll, I'll, talk about the the personal lighthearted side of it which is that um in going through all of this dna stuff my mom was able to realize that um the affair her mother had had with another man that led to her full-blooded siblings versus her half siblings um was with a neighbor and um when talking to the father who was the neighbor and looking at his dna um, his father was his mother's neighbor as well. <laughs> so <laughs> you want to talk about like ge- genealogy and, um, you know, the apple not far, falling far from the tree. And, uh, you know, he had no idea and, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff, but it was, it, that's what I meant by like this, this saga coming out over multiple years. And, it's incredible that the blood tells the story. Like it's, mm. y- you know, like you, it's really clear. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's not um, de- debatable really. And I, um, it's been interesting to see my, my mom, like you, Russ is, um, I tell her all the time she needs to like start her own business doing this for people because she's amazing. But she went back and looked at like French Canadian birth certificates and census records and mm-hmm. um, all of these kinds of things in order to trace back, you know, who was married to who and who, and, but that DNA doesn't match this. And, you know, like all that kind of stuff, it's just incredible to me that all of that information is available in this day and age. So, you know, while we are losing the the culture and the, the process of this um, authentic heritage that we have, we're gaining this other piece of it that we never had before because technology allows us to connect to all of this information we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. I mean, uh, so two great points too. And that is that, yeah, like, so my own family history, when I was going through it, uh, 
I, I traced back, like, uh, you know, my father's side of the family, the, the, the family that I really learned about, they were all in Michigan. And I was like, how is it that they all, like, all these Brits, like, came to be living in Michigan, right? And, I mean, they, they've got really strong British ties, right? And so as I peeled back the layer, I realized that the family, as they had arrived, you know, in uh, on the Mayflower, so in Plymouth and all that stuff, and then settled throughout the area— when the Revolutionary War came about, about 100 years after that, they fought on the side of the British. They were loyalists. And so that's how still ingrained with British culture they were at the time, that even after 100 years, that family still fought uh, against the American revolutionaries. And so when the, the Revolutionary War was over, they fled and went to Canada and they, they tried to get away. So they went to British Canada, you know, and then eventually migrated down to Michigan. And so finding all that kind of stuff out was really interesting to me. And, and it's just kind of fun that the one night, like kind of neat fact about my family, you know, and I could find that all through the prison records, the gravestones, which said, you know, in Canada where, where that family had ended up being buried and stuff, I could see pictures of the gravestones on the internet that said things like, you know, royal loyalist or whatever the title they had given to those people who had fled up to Canada Whoa. afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And so I was able to find all that through technology. And then the second piece is, uh, you know, you're talking about how weird it is to connect with family members who you'd have no actual personal connection with. It is so awkward. Like it is because imagine, right? Like I, I have my full brother that I've, I've, you know, obviously grew up with. He's my older brother. And then I have my, my stepdad who raised me. He also was married before. So I have also a stepbrother who's around my age. And then my parents had two children after that too. And so I grew up in a house full of kids, right? All my family, you know, all my brothers and sisters, we didn't say half, we didn't say step. They were just, everybody was brother and sister, right? And the connections and the bonds that I share with them are so tight. And these may not be people, if I met them on the street, I would immediately want to hang out with them, right? Like they're like my siblings. I love them, but they're not like, you know what I mean? Like we we yeah. we have that love because of the 39 years I've been on this planet and having this relationship with them. But I don't have that relationship with those other siblings, right? But I'm closer in blood to some of them, like for example, than my stepbrother, right? But at the same time, when I'm introducing myself, it's like I want to get to know you but I don't have room in my heart for three more siblings. You know, I can't, I can't figure out how to do that, you know? And so it's been so awkward for us to talk just on Facebook messenger, like, Oh, so, uh, you know what I mean? Like it's either all or nothing, you know, it's not like a casual friend where you're like, Oh yes, this is my brother. And I don't even know their middle name. Right. Like that's kind of not something that happens in life. And so it's this really, I would just say, as you start to peel back the onion in your own kind of family history and research and everything, is to be emotionally prepared for kind of the things that are unexpected that can come out of this. And then, like you said, like with your family history of cancer, right? That's, that's something that you didn't jump into that saying, hey, I want to want, you know, I want to find out whether or not we have cancer in the family. That's just something that kind of happened as you came across this journey. And so it's definitely a word of warning. And I put that in the book, you know, is is be careful what you what you're doing because, you know, the the norms that we have kind of established for ourselves that keep us sane throughout life and stuff. You could potentially upend all of those by doing this research. So it's just something to think about. But it is fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I um, I could not agree more, but I also wouldn't trade it. But that's a personal decision. And yeah. um, there are family members in my mom's family who have intentionally chosen not to take a DNA test because they feel very strongly about what they know about their family and they, they don't want to know different. And that's also a, you know, a valid yeah. choice, but I, I can yeah. totally understand yes. wanting, wanting yeah. again, like not wanting to upend your entire world and find out, right. Oh, you're not my parent or you're not my sibling or, yeah. you know, finding those things out, I think would be really challenging for a lot of people. Yeah. The benefit of knowing, for example, that you have DNA that says gluten is a problem for you and a history of colon cancer, for example, in my family is very clear to me that the family members who also have the same DNA factors who did not remove gluten are now facing that repercussion. And so it's like that much more important for my mom and I to really, you know, to really super be careful and take it seriously because we can see now that, you know, our DNA does not 
cope well and we need to handle it, right? So there's this this trade-off and this benefit that you get from, um, for example, 23andMe. And I think that you can actually do them anonymously and not necessarily Yeah, have, I was going to say yeah. with, um, so I've only done a 23andMe and I've done um, other genetic screening through my functional medicine provider and through MaxGen. And um, with 23andMe, you don't necessarily you have to like opt in for finding out about your family. Like, so you'll find out about your heritage and risk genes, but there's this like extra step if you, so if you don't want to find out about genetic relatives, you don't need to. And then there's still another step about opting into allowing genetic relatives to contact you through 23andMe. So they definitely do offer you the opportunity to not find that part out if that's something that you just really don't want to go there. Um, but then there's also, right, there's companies like MaxGen that do select screenings that are really at that micro level, like looking for um, genes that would increase your your risk of having non-celiac gluten sensitivity, for example, or genes that um, say that your uh, the way that your body processes saturated fat is not awesome and that you're a person who actually is going to have lower cardiovascular disease risk if you lower your saturated fat intake. And there are lots of SNPs in which we actually can draw some more direct um, diet and lifestyle information from. And so their their service is very, um, very focused on, right, that very micro only looking at SNPs in which there's a pretty good body of scientific evidence showing that there's some kind of action that can be taken based on having those particular variants rather than the the heritage. So there are there are different options in terms of genetic screening for people. If people have been listening to this podcast and go, hi, don't want to upend the apple cart. Um, <laughs> what but but you know some of these other you know things like knowing my HLA, um, you know genotype, knowing you know what um, what other risk alleles I have. Do do I have genetic lactose intolerance? Right, knowing those things. Um, there are other options for, for getting that information that don't necessarily reveal uh, complex family dynamics. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll add too, you know, in 23andMe as well, some of the genetic predisposition traits for specific diseases, you have to opt into those too. Like it'll actually yeah. say, do you want these results or not? And then you hit, yeah. So the other ones where it's like whether or not you're going to have a unibrow, like those, they just tell you, right. But there's other right. ones where it's like, where, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you have to specifically say, yes, I do want to know my predisposition for Alzheimer's, things yeah. like that. And but you because... have no choice to know if you get asparagus piecemeal, right. They're exactly. just going to tell you. Or if you sneeze when you, when you bite into dark chocolate, you know, there's all these Wait, weird things. Is that things, a thing? So. Yeah, it's called Achu is the name of the SNP, like A C H O. Oh, stop. SNP, but it really is. And it's like auditory something or other. I can't believe it, Sarah, you don't know this. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, because it's, it's basically exposure to like very strong sensations. So biting into bitter foods like dark chocolate or uh, immediate like bright sunshine, like going from, uh-huh. you know, inside to outside that can make you sneeze. Like that's the same kind of trait. And it's a Neanderthal trait, actually, which is kind of crazy. Interesting. I sneeze when yeah. I pluck my eyebrows. <laughs> so. The bright light thing totally happens to our family. That's interesting. I have All right. a very high percentage of Neanderthal genes. So now I know. Now I know that's yeah. it. I'm, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna wrap it up because we're lo- we're losing we're losing <laughs> thought process here. <laughs> um, Russ, thank you so much for joining us and uh, telling your story and um, putting this incredible body of literature together that also happens to have 300 recipes if you are interested in finding out more about the heritage cookbook you can find russ and all of his social media and information about the book at thedomesticman.com and i just want to thank you so much for coming on and um Thank you listeners for being here. If you have your own stories about taking any of these ancestry uh, tests, we'd love to hear them in the comments of the blog posts for this podcast uh, or social media. We, 
I personally am super fascinated to hear anybody's interesting stories, um, having lived it and talked with Russ about his experience. So if you have any good ones, please come share them in our social media or on the blog posts. And um, you can post them anonymously or you can can share them publicly, but um, I'd love to see them nonetheless. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be back again next week and I'll be on the road. Woohoo! <laughs> Lucky girl. I'm, I'm so jealous you guys get to do that. You know, it's going to be really awesome. Uh, you know, you say that, but you have not <laughs> been living the last few weeks of my life has been, I, I'm like, I'm like, I can't, I've never been this anxious and stressed out in anticipation of a vacation in my life. Like it is just, <laughs> but, um, I'm a worrier. I'm an over planner by nature and I'm sure everything will be great as soon as we're on the road and able to just kind of relax and enjoy the sights. But I'm just so sure that I'm going to, you know, forget the thing that we need, you know, like passports and, and you know, whatever. <laughs> and if you forget, I mean, okay. Other than passports, anything you forget, you can, you can get on the road. I know. I keep, I keep telling myself like, we're going to be in the U S there's going to be mainstream stores anywhere we go. But I do know that we're going to a lot of places that are more rural. And so, you know, getting things that are staples for us, for example, avocado oil mayonnaise that we're going to need throughout the two months. And then how do I store that in a minivan for five people for two months? So it's, it's been a journey and I'm, I, we're so close to the end and I feel really good that we've come up with an out of the box solution. I haven't found any information on the internet of someone doing it the way we're doing it, which makes me feel like we're super crazy. Um, and it's going to be <laughs> terrible. <laughs> That's or why nobody recommends it. And yes. everyone will copy your methodology forever after. Exactly. So I hope to report positive news in the coming weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks again, Russ, for joining us. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.